Okay, let's pray, and we'll ask God to meet us in his word. Such a joy, Lord, to be back today and be able to get back into Hebrews. And thank you for how you have met me this week in this passage. And I pray, Lord, just unleash the power of your word today. Pour out your Holy Spirit. Enlighten the eyes of our hearts. Let us see and feel the glory of Jesus Christ in these words so that we would love your Holy Son more, so that we would fight sin more, so that we would love each other more and advance the gospel more. You can do all those things and more through the power of your word. So help me and work in our hearts, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Good. So in a group this size, it's certain that some of us are facing serious temptations to sin right now. Certain in a group this size. Maybe you're being tempted to seek revenge against someone who's hurt you. Maybe you're being tempted to commit adultery and to leave your husband or your wife for someone else. Maybe you're being tempted to do something dishonest. But it's certain that some of us here this morning are, and you know, if it's you, that you're, you're, you're facing some serious temptation. And if you're not this morning facing serious temptation, you will be at some point. Right? This is the Christian life. Satan's prowling like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Serious temptations come across our path. But here's the good news. God loves us. He is compassionate towards us. He cares about us. So he doesn't sit back and just say, hope you guys can overcome the temptations. He has given us, in his word, powerful weapons, which, if we will use them, will overcome the temptations that we face. And the reason I mention that is because one of those powerful weapons is in today's passage in the book of Hebrews. So let's turn to Hebrews chapter 12 powerful weapon to help us overcome the temptations we're facing. The guys are up here with Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, we are serious about studying the Bible here, so raise your hand. We'll bring one to you so you can look on this passage with us. We'll be looking at Hebrews 12, 18 through 24. That's on page 1009 in the Bibles we're passing out. Now let me just give you a little bit of overview of, of, of how this passage breaks down. In Hebrews 12, verses 15 through 17, see those three verses right there, the author urges us, don't be like Esau. Okay, we looked at this briefly four weeks ago, I guess now. We're gonna, we had some questions about that. We're going to talk a little bit about that again. So he says, don't be like Esau, who was overpowered by temptation. And then in verses 18 through 24, he gives us the weapon the powerful weapon which will enable us to overcome temptations so we won't be like Esau. So that's verses 15 through 17. Don't be like Esau. Verses 18 through 24, here's how you can not be like Esau. So let's start with verses 15 through 17. What was Esau doing? What happened with Esau? Here's what the author says. Verse 15, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, 
who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Now here's the background of what's going on here. Esau was the firstborn son. And in Jewish culture, the firstborn son uh, received the birthright to the entire family inheritance. So by being the firstborn son, Esau had the right to the entire family inheritance when father passed away. That's what the birthright meant. But then here's the problem. Esau had been hunting all day long. Out hunting, okay? Hadn't eaten all day long. He was really hungry. Really, really painfully hungry. And he saw that his brother had, when he came home, he saw that his brother was cooking some stew. Ooh, it smells good. And so he says, hey, Jacob, can I have some of that stew? I'm famished. And and Jacob, being the conniver that he was, said, "Um, I will only give you some of this stew if you trade me for your birthright. Give me the birthright. I'll give you some stew. So here's the picture. You got, you got this birthright here that is Esau's, the full family inheritance, massive wealth coming. And then you got a meal of stew. He traded the birthright and went for the stew. That's what Esau did. And here's the point the author wants to make. That's what's happening to us when we face temptation to sin. Let's get real concrete here. Notice in verse 16, he mentions sexual immorality. So let's take that as an illustration. If one of, if one of us here, if, if one of you men are thinking of leaving your wife or women are thinking of leaving your husband for someone else, you should understand that you are risking trading salvation for a single meal of sin. That's what you're risking. To trade salvation, all that that means, for a single meal of sin. And to help us see how dangerous that would be to move ahead in that, he, he reminds us about what happened with Esau. Remember, after Esau made that terrible trade, he regretted his decision. He wanted to get the birthright back with weeping, okay? But the author says he was not, he found no chance to repent, even though he found, even though he sought it with tears. Now, don't misunderstand what that means. You could think what that means is if I sin once, it's over. No forgiveness. No matter what I do, I, I won't be forgiven. That's not what the Bible teaches. If we confess our sins every time, no matter what the sin, if we will repent and confess our sins and put our trust in Jesus Christ, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's 1 John 1.9. That's what the Bible teaches very clearly. But what this does mean in this verse is that sin, if we move ahead into sin, it can so harden our hearts that we don't want to repent. Sin is powerful. If we move into sin, sin could so harden our hearts that we don't want to turn from sin and trust Christ. We might, we might weep, 
but it won't be weeping because we've profaned God's glory and we want back to God. It would just like Esau would be weeping maybe because of the, the consequences that our sin is bringing to us. So what the author wants us to understand is we should never say something like this. I hear too many believers talking this way. Don't, please don't. We should never say, I'm going to go ahead and pursue this affair. And I know that's wrong, but then I'm going to confess it and everything will be fine. You, you must not talk that way. That's not what he's teaching here in verse 17. It might not be fine because that sin could so harden your heart that you don't want to repent and that you never repent, which would mean you're not saved. And, of course, that would mean that you never were saved to begin with because we don't believe the Bible teaches that someone can lose salvation. So let fifteen these verses 15 through 17 feel the weightiness of what the author, in great love for us, wants us to understand. The Holy Spirit shows that he inspired these verses in this way because he wants us to feel the weightiness of this. The Holy Spirit is saying, like he's here, here's what he's saying, don't be like Esau. Don't be like Esau. Don't risk trading salvation for a single meal of sin. Don't do that. Please don't do that. That's what verses 15 through 17 are saying. Okay, but now, how do we fight temptation when it comes? How do we resist the temptation? And the author tells us in verses 18 through 24. Notice the first word in verse 18. It's the word for, right? Is that what your Bible says? It's the word for, first verse of verse, first word of verse 18 is the word for, which can also be translated because. So this is why we should not be like Esau. This is the reason that if we will pray over it, the Holy Spirit will move in our hearts through it so that we have power to say no. Here's this reason the author gives us in verses 18 through 24. So that's the reason. So what is the reason that he gives us? Let me explain it briefly, and then we're going to unpack it in more detail. In a nutshell, the reason is, look at the worth of your salvation. Look at the salvation that you have. And to help us see the worth of our salvation, he starts off, notice in verse 18, saying, you have not come to, and then he describes what Israel experienced at Mount Sinai. He says, you've not come to that. And he wants to contrast what we do have with that because in verse 22 he says, but you have come to, and then he describes the salvation that's ours in Jesus. So in a nutshell, the reason is this. Look at the worth of your salvation, which is highlighted to us when we contrast what Israel experienced at Sinai with what we have now in Christ. So you see where we're going? Okay, you with me? All right, now, verse 18 through 21. What have we not come to? Verses 18 through 21. For you have not come to what may be touched. And he's referring to a physical mountain, Mount Sinai. You've not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Okay, what's going on here? What's happening in this passage? Here's the, here's the backstory. God lovingly 
graciously, kindly freed Israel from slavery in Egypt. So they were freed from their slavery. God parted the Red Sea, so they went across, brought the Red Sea back over the Egyptian army. They were safe. He provided water for them through the wilderness. He provided food for them through the wilderness. He led them and guided them with the pillar of fire and cloud through the wilderness, and he brought them to Mount Sinai. This is what God had done. So there they are at Mount Sinai. And God tells Moses, in three days, I'm going to come down with my very presence upon Mount Sinai, and I'm going to display my glory and my majesty. And the reason he did this is because he wants Israel to understand what it would mean for them in their sinfulness to be before a holy, righteous God with no mediator, no savior, no forgiveness. He wants Israel to feel what it means to be sinful people before a holy and righteous God. So three days later, Moses gathered all of Israel and they all gathered around the mountain. He said, don't don't have anybody come up even... Don't, don't have them start up the mountain. If even an animal, if any of you or even an animal crosses and starts up the mountain, you'll be killed. And then God came down upon Mount Sinai with his presence. There was fire and lightning and booming voice. It was like this furnace ablaze upon the mountain. And the people were absolutely terrified, as they should be, because here they saw, we have sinned. God is holy and righteous and glorious. And God wanted them to feel what it would be like to come before a holy God as sinful people without a mediator, without a savior, without forgiveness of sins. So that's God's purpose in having Israel experience what they did here at Mount Sinai. And that's what we have not come to. Don't you love it? You have not come to a holy, righteous, glorious God and not have any mediator or savior. And again, this doesn't mean that in the Old Testament no one got forgiven. Moses ended up going on top of Mount Sinai and for 40 days he talked with God. David says, how blessed is the one whose sins are forgiven. Old Testament saints had their sins forgiven through trusting God's mercy because of what Jesus would do thousands of years ahead on the cross. That's why David could say in Psalm 1611, in your presence, God, is fullness of joy. Right? So don't misunderstand the Old Testament here. God simply wanted to give the people of Israel a picture. Here is what it means for sinful people to stand before a glorious, righteous, holy God and have no mediator, no savior, no forgiveness. Feel it so you trust my capacity to save you through what the Messiah will do. Okay? And that picture is what we have not come to. See, all clear what we have not come to? Now, what have we come to? So glad the author goes there next. Verses 22 through 24. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. And to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. 
Now this is a totally different picture than what Israel had experienced at Mount Sinai. It's not fire and thunder and lightning and fear. Whole different experience here. And remember why the author is telling us this now that he does here. It's because he, he wants us to see the value of our salvation, the infinite value of our salvation, so we will not risk trading our salvation for a single meal of sin. See the salvation that we have. That's his purpose here. So let's go through this description of the salvation we have phrase by phrase. Just unpack this. So here's what I would encourage you to do. When you find yourself tempted, I would pull out this passage. There's others that are like it. And just pray through this description of your salvation. And as you pray through and say, Father, come now. Enlighten the eyes of my heart. Help me not just to understand this, but to feel the glory, the mercy, the majesty. And as you do that, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. You will see, trust, and feel the glory of Jesus Christ in the salvation. And sin's pull will lose its power. So let's go through this phrase by phrase. He says, But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Now, this is a description of heaven. Okay? And he, he doesn't say, you will come to heaven. That is true, right? The moment you die through faith in Jesus Christ, you will immediately go to heaven. That's not what he says here, though. Here he says, you have come to heaven. And what his point is, he wants us to understand that through Christ, we can have tastes of heaven's joys now by the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. He wants us to understand that now in this life, we can have times where we experience the very presence of the living God. So let this sink in. Here's your salvation. You can have times in this life, like this afternoon, tonight, tomorrow, where you taste the very presence of the living God. That's your salvation. Think about that. Are you going to risk trading that for a single meal of sin? No. Next phrase. This is an amazing phrase. And to innumerable angels in festal gathering. When they came to Sinai, no mediator is fire and darkness and gloom and fear. Now, because of Christ, we come to innumerable angels. And that word innumerable means tens of thousands. So we've come to tens of thousands of angels. And don't think, remember, angels are not pudgy little beings plucking harps on on clouds. Angels are, they're created by God, they're under God, but they are supernatural, powerful beings shining with glory. That's angels. And so we have come to tens of thousands of angels, and they are in festal gathering. You know what festal gathering is? It means they're having a party. They are celebrating. And what is it that would make 10,000 powerful, glorious angels all be celebrating? Remember Jesus taught us in Luke 15. Angels rejoice when? When one sinner turns and puts their trust in Jesus Christ. So here's the picture of your salvation. Your salvation is so glorious, so beautiful, so spectacular, that it causes tens of thousands of angels in heaven right now to be in festivity and in celebration. Don't trade that salvation. Don't risk trading that salvation 
for a single meal of sin. Keep going. Next phrase. To the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. Now, this is a picture of all those who've been saved through Jesus Christ. Old Testament saints, New Testament saints, everybody there. There's the assembly. And we're called, we have come to the assembly. So we're part of this assembly. And and it's called the assembly of the firstborn because, like I said, in Jewish culture, the firstborn received the entire inheritance. And so through faith in Jesus Christ, you as you are firstborn, you will receive the entire inheritance of salvation in Jesus Christ. And it's to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. So I thought about that enrolled a lot. I looked up the word in the Greek. It means that you've, you've had your name written in the book of life, which is in heaven. Enrolled means your name is written down. So here's the picture I had. What, what if we went to heaven right now, this morning, okay, and we said, Jesus, and Jesus is running towards us, you know, and he loves us. And we say, Jesus, where's the book of life? We want to see the book of life. And he says, it's right over there. I'll take you to it. So he walks us over. And, and what, what do you want to see? I want to see where my name is in it. Okay, so he would, he would look up under F for Fuller and F-U, and, and he said, and may, maybe written in Jesus' blood, Steve Fuller. Okay, Steve Marsh, Chris Keener, Minglan Keener, okay, Paul Walton. Your name written in Christ's indelible blood there. So here's the salvation. You're going to be gathered with all the saints, Old Testament, New Testament, from every nation, tongue, and tribe, all the redeemed, all the firstborn receiving the full inheritance of Christ's salvation. And right now, your name, if you're trusting Jesus Christ, this is real. If you're trusting Jesus Christ, your name is written there, indelibly, with Christ's blood, your name is written. Don't risk trading that salvation for a single meal of sin. Next phrase. And we have come to God, the judge of all. You might think that the reason we can be saved and forgiven and go to heaven is because God is not judging sin. He's not judging your sin. It's very interesting that the author includes this, though, in this beautiful picture. We're going to be coming to God, the judge of all. See, God is perfectly righteous. He perfectly judges and punishes all sin. Mine, yours, and everyone. So how can we be in heaven and be forgiven? It's because in great mercy, because of Jesus' death on the cross, God judged and punished my sin. And if you're trusting Christ, he has punished your sin in his own son on the cross. See, every sin profanes God's glorious name. And God, as perfectly righteous and just, must punish all sin. And so all sin will be punished either by the person being punished forever in hell, which we we, we long would not be true for anyone here, either because God punishes the person's sin in hell or because God, in great love and mercy, sent his own son and punished his own son for our sin on the cross. So imagine standing before God. You will be there. We've come to this judge, standing before God, the judge of all, And seeing him and seeing that he, in amazing mercy, judged and punished all of your sins in his holy son. 
Imagine seeing him looking at you with love in his eyes and Jesus standing right there saying, yes, that's your salvation. Don't risk trading that salvation for a single meal of sin. Don't do it. Next phrase. To the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Okay, we're not made perfect yet. All right? But on the cross, Jesus purchased and secured perfection for all those who trust him. He's purchased everything necessary for your final sinlessness. When he died on the cross, he paid for all the guilt of your sin. When he died on the cross, he broke the power of sin in you. When he lived, died on the cross, he purchased the gift of perfect righteousness, which he clothes you with now through trusting Christ. Not that you become perfectly righteous now, but you're clothed with Jesus' righteousness, so God sees you as perfectly righteous in Christ. On the cross, Jesus purchased the gift of the Holy Spirit, who, when you put your trust in Christ, you receive as a gift, and the Holy Spirit, day by day, progressively, is sanctifying you. Day by day is empowering you to conquer sin. Day by day is helping you to grow, to trust Christ more, to love others more, to serve more, to fight sin more. There's growing progressiveness in holiness. And on the cross, Jesus bought for you the final gift of glorification, which means that the moment you die and you enter heaven, he glorifies you. You are sinless, really. Not just clothed with sinlessness, but really sinless at that point. So if you're trusting Jesus Christ, this is your destiny. This is your destiny. You will one day be morally blameless, perfect, sinless. This is what Jesus bought for you. This is your salvation. Sinlessness forever. Don't risk trading that for a single meal of sin now. Next phrase. And to Jesus. We've come to Jesus. The mediator. There's the mediator. The mediator of a new covenant. Mount Sinai showed Israel and shows us how much we need a mediator. Someone who will stand between us in our sin, and a holy, perfectly righteous God. And by dying on the cross, that was Jesus. He paid for our sin. He was punished in our place. He's the mediator, so we can come to God through him. And here, Jesus is described as the mediator of a new covenant. It's a powerful phrase. The new covenant, described back in Hebrews chapter 8, is God's supernatural power to change our hearts. This is so precious. Listen, this coming week, if you're trusting Jesus Christ, you have Jesus who's the mediator of a new covenant. So this coming week, if you find yourself feeling bitter or overwhelmed with envy or discouraged, despondent, or full of lust or pride or just like totally unspiritual, like just there's no faith in me at all, If this next week you find your heart just really far from God, you do not need to despair. You don't need to try to change your heart yourself. The new covenant means that God's supernatural power will come and he has the power to change your heart. 
to move in upon you, to revive his life in you. And so as you pray, as you say, Father, come and help me, as you open up the word and pray over the scriptures, he will send the Holy Spirit through the new covenant to give you a new heart, to stir faith, to stir love, to stir the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. New covenants. You come to Jesus. He's the mediator of a new covenant. God's supernatural power to change your heart no matter how unspiritual you feel. Some of you are maybe sitting here thinking, I came to church this morning. I don't know Jesus. I have no faith. I don't feel spiritual at all. I guess this is just not for me. Wrong. It's for you. The new covenant is for people who need their hearts changed. Your heart needs to be changed. You're a candidate for the new covenant. This is the best news in the world. Oh, if you knew how many times my heart was just like really feeling far from God. It's like, Lord, help me. And he comes with his new covenant power and he changes our hearts. So here's the salvation you have. The mediator, Jesus Christ, who's purchased God's supernatural new covenant power, which changes our hearts. Don't risk trading that salvation for a single meal of sin. Don't. Hey, keep going. Last phrase. And we have come to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Here's the background. Genesis chapter 4. You can read about this this afternoon. What happened was in Genesis 4 is that Cain, you've all heard about Cain and Abel, Cain viciously murdered his brother Abel, killed him killed him. And Genesis 4 says that Abel's blood cries out from the ground. And I think what Abel's blood is crying out is, sin must be punished. That's what Abel's blood is crying out. Sin must be punished. Look at the wickedness of this sin. Sin must be punished. That's what Abel's blood is crying out. But we've come to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Jesus' blood doesn't say, sin must be punished. Jesus' blood says, through faith in Jesus Christ, your sin has already been punished in him. Your sin, through faith in Jesus Christ, has all been punished. All your past sin, punished. Present sinfulness that's still at war within you, already punished. Future sin you're going to commit, already punished in Jesus Christ on the cross 2,000 years ago. Which means, if all your sins, we, we come back to this again and again here at Mercy Hill, if all your sins have been punished, how much more punishment are you going to face for your sin? Zero. None. It's all been punished. So here's the salvation you have. All your sins punished in Christ. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No punishment ever from God. Only love and grace and compassion and mercy from God, your Father, from now, forever and ever and ever and ever. That's your salvation. Don't risk trading that salvation for a single meal of sin. Do you see the power, verses 18 through 24, in terms of a weapon that we can use to battle temptation when it comes? Okay, now before we draw some application, let me just see if we have any questions. It's always helpful to ask if you've got questions because you 
Maybe if, maybe if I've overstated something, you can help me see that, or maybe you'll help shed light on something. So what, what questions does this passage stir up in your heart? I think it's just two, like exactly what you said, I think it's just two different ways of describing the same group of people. Same group, explain two different aspects. They're, they're righteous in the second picture, that's the focus on, on their righteousness. In the first picture, the focus is on assembling uh, names enrolled in heaven. So just two different ways of describing the same group exactly. My conviction from the scriptures is that when God saves someone, he starts a work in them that he will keep going, a work of faith, a work of trust in Christ, that he will keep going all the way to heaven. So no one who is saved by the power of Jesus Christ will fall away from the faith and not end up in heaven. Everyone who God saves will end up in heaven. Really important. So we all, that's a really important point. That's, you're, you're raising that issue. Okay, so we all clear on that point? Now, one of the ways we can tell that we've been saved is because we are, we are persevering. Everyone who has been saved will persevere, but the Bible has warnings. We've seen them in Hebrews 3 and chapter 6 and chapter 10. Like, if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for our sins. Hebrews chapter 10. So we're trying to take both sides of truth seriously here at Mercy Hill Church. When God saves you, he will keep you trusting him all the way to the end. Beautiful promise, cling to that. But if I think, uh, I think I'm going to, what would be, like, I think I'm going to murder somebody who uh, crossed me 10 years ago. If you loved me, you'd say, Hebrews 10, brother, if you go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there may be no further sacrifice for your sin. That is, if, if I pursue a willful sin like that, that could show, not that I've lost my salvation, but that I never was saved to begin with. So we're trying to take those warnings seriously. We take the promise of perseverance seriously. We cling to that. If you are wondering... Will I have faith to keep going this next week? You should take full rest and comfort. The good work that God started in you, Philippians 1.6, he will continue until the day of Christ Jesus. It's not going to be by my strength, Lord, that I'm going to continue to trust you this next week. It's going to be by your strength. I'm trusting you. You will keep me this next week. So if you're struggling with whether you're going to make it or not, rest in those promises of assurance. On the other hand, If you are considering willful sin and you don't give a rip about Christ or his glory and you're thinking, I'm just going to go ahead and sin and be forgiven afterwards, the Bible would say, think twice. Amen. (laughs) Amen. Okay, so... But so you had a number of years where where you had drifted from Christ. Okay, and now here you are back. The good work he started... He has continued. It doesn't mean we're sinless. It doesn't mean we never drift. But he will bring us back. And he's done that in your case. This is a huge question. And I'm sure some of you are scratching your head with what I've just said, thinking, how do those both go together? We're trying to fit both the warnings, taking those seriously, with the beautiful promises of God keeping us in faith until the end. So I want to move ahead now. I want to wrap this up. So here's the last question. How does this help us overcome temptation? So think about Esau. If Esau would have stopped, he's starving, he's hungry, and if he would have compared, okay, I've got my my birthright, I've got the full inheritance coming, all that wealth, 
And if he would have really stopped and compared that with a single meal of stew, if he would have really like made the comparison, he would have said, that's not worth it. I'm going to just be hungry and I'll go, you know, cook up a batch of cornmeal mush. I'm just going to eat that in about, we'll be ready in about 30 minutes. I can do this, okay? Because of the inheritance. It's totally worth it. That's what would have helped Esau overcome that. And the same is true with us. If we will stop and use a passage like this to help us see the, the wealth of our salvation, and if we will compare that with a single meal of sin, we will see the utter foolishness and the Holy Spirit will change our hearts so sin will lose its pull on us and we will embrace our salvation and fight against sin and fight the fight of faith and press on in following the Lord Jesus. So just try this right now. Compare a single meal of sin on the one hand. Compare that with now tasting God's joys, the joys that God will give to us in heaven. Compare a single meal of sin with the joys of knowing the living God now. Compare them. Compare the, a single meal of sin with a salvation so glorious that ten thousands of angels are celebrating the wonders of it. Compare that. A single meal of sin with having your name written in the book of life, the Lamb's book of life and with the blood of Christ indelibly written there. With beholding the perfect judge, perfectly righteous, And yet in his mercy, he judged and punished your sin in his own son, Jesus on the cross. Compare this this single meal of sin with the promise that one day you will be completely free from sin. Promised. By his power, you'll be completely free from sin. Compare the, the single meal of sin with what it means to have Jesus as your mediator, who's purchased the new covenant heart changing power for you. And then compare the single meal of sin with what it means to have Jesus' blood, which cries out, your sin has been punished. All of it, past, present, and future, in my death on the cross. So compare the salvation that we have with a single meal of sin. Just make that comparison. And you won't risk trading your salvation for a single meal of sin. Now, one more thing. Very important. What if this past week you sinned against God and you did risk trading your salvation for a single meal of sin. Here's the good news. Repent. Turn your heart back to Jesus Christ. Right now. It's right now. Trust him as your savior. Look at his death on the cross. Trust him as Lord. Look at his beautiful, flawless love. Every command is just dripping with goodness for you. Trust him as Savior. Trust him as Lord. Trust him as heart-satisfying treasure. And the moment you repent and put your trust in Jesus Christ, no matter what you've done this past week, he's running towards you. He's running towards you, smiling, embraces you. He will assure you of forgiveness of all your sins. He will assure you of your salvation and you will be fully, 100% restored. So repent and put your trust in Jesus Christ, Savior, Lord, and treasure, and that's what will happen. Okay, let's stand together. I want to pray this over us. Weighty truths in your word, Lord. Please, I pray, bring them home to our hearts right now 
in exactly the way that we each need to hear them depending on what's going on in our lives. By the work of your Spirit right now, Lord, I pray for those right now who are facing serious temptation, feeling like helpless, feeling powerless. Lord, by the work of your Spirit right now, help them just to look to you, Jesus Christ, and say, help, and then come and help them. Strengthen them. Encourage them. Show them in new, deep ways the wonder of salvation so that sin's tug will lose its power. And help them, Lord. Meet them, we pray. Father, I pray for all of us because the day will come when we do face serious temptation. Let us remember this passage and pull out these big weapons you've given to us to conquer every temptation that comes our way. And Lord, when we do sin... When we do turn from you to a single meal of sin, bring us back. Make us quick to return. Make us quick to repent. And we love, Jesus, how you will be running towards us with assurance and with forgiveness and with joy and with full restoration. I pray for people here right now who need to turn to you in that way and receive all that you have for them. Come and do that, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.